Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. Hey, welcome to episode two of Practitioner Radio. This is Chris Dancy, and I'm here with... Troy Dumoulin. Troy Dumoulin. Now, Troy, I have to be honest with you. This is our second episode of uh, Practitioner Radio, and this one's actually going to have practitioner information. Uh, our first one was kind of astounded about by the uh, pinkers, uh, George and David. No, I'm okay with that, Chris. Cool. So I, I guess we could say at the beginning of each year that Practitioner Radio will be somewhat co-sponsored by the Pink Conference. <laughs> Um, we've got some exciting stuff because I think Practitioner Radio, Troy, uh, well, let's ask you, what is your vision for Practitioner Radio? You've had a chance to be involved in some podcasts in the past with Pink. What are you looking forward to? If I had to look at a goal for this, it'd be giving practical application, giving tips, tricks. How do I get there from here? Uh, Does it have to be perfect? No. What kind of benefits can I get quickly? So the, the more meat and potatoes kind of activity. Cool. And that's that's exactly the void I think we need to, that needs to be filled out there right now. There seems to be um, more and more podcasts that are just talked about, you know, literally as if they're reading a book. But um, after reading your blog for several years, and I have to be honest with you, some of it's even above my head, um, I thought, you know, what a perfect way to do this. So hopefully uh, with each episode, we'll have you or some uh, another pinker, maybe even a guest every now and then, um, to talk about practical application. Um, and I guess... To get things started, um, is it okay if I have just just questions that maybe the average person wants to know the answer to? Just ask you. Right, that'd be fine. The average person. Who is the average person, Chris? Uh, good, you know. Now in twenty eleven, who knows? I don't know if I've ever met one of those. No. Well, we'll define me as the uh, on average person and ask those questions. <laughs> you sure? Okay. <laughs> so here at Pink, we have something called Pink Scan, and as a topic of discussion to kick off a real practitioner radio episode. We're going to be talking about some results from Pink Scan and uh, and problem management. Can you kick things off for me? Explain to me, like I'm not even in a foundations class. Pretend I haven't even been in a foundations class. Pretend I'm your spouse, your Mrs. Dumoulin. How do you explain, or how would you explain, problem management to a non-IT person? From an ITIL perspective, we look at two different things, right? We we look at you know, how do I restore this, get this thing back to working, restore the service. And then after I've done that and I've got things running, I've got somehow the means to, you know, that have that person back up and running again. I have to step back and think, okay, why did that happen? How do I avoid that in the future? And how do I get off the hamster wheel of death of having it reoccur thousands and thousands of time? So problem management is more in that second category. Um, I like to think of incident management is fix the user if you want get the user back up and running problem management fix the technology but as techno geeks we often jump right to the technology leaving the poor user stranded you know here we're sitting at their desk you know on their laptop for two hours well (laughs) we could have given them another one and taken their laptop away right so often we we jump to the technology when really we should be focusing on the customer service so could if if i was mrs dumoulin could you basically say that I was making dinner one night and uh, something burnt, so I quickly uh, got you something else to eat in the meantime. 
but afterwards, I went back and found out that one of the coils on my stove was overheating, and that was actually what I needed to fix. That could be the root cause, and then you've identified it now. It'd be a real problem if that coil kept overheating and kept burning out. So we didn't just restore it once, but we've actually seen a pattern. So we have a defective stove. We might have something more intrinsic to the, the stove, maybe the power. Right that aspect which is out of our control and what would the power to the stove out of our control be in it terms could that be an outside provider it could be an outside provider a lot of times known errors and things that you know are outside of your control don't allow you to fix the the problem permanently but find temporary workarounds like going going out and ordering chicken dinners from you know your local grocery store because your dinner keeps getting messed up so we we technically just proved we could explain problem management to my mom we could i mean it's all about Pattern recognition, right? Have I seen this before? Okay, maybe I can do something about it by finding an alternate way to get that done. So as a human, pattern recognition is something I, I think most people deal with on a daily basis because we're always looking for, it seems like we're always looking for coincidences and things and that sort of pattern recognition. Do you think there's anything intrinsically human that makes problem management more difficult for some people than others from a people prospect? from a people perspective? I think we often see the patterns, but just can't find the time to deal with them. Mm. You know, there's a saying that uh, the necessary is always overrun by the urgent, right? So we're always firefighting. We're always kind of fixing the immediate emergency, wherever that source is coming from. And we very rarely ever take the time, go back, take a more holistic look at things and figure out how do we avoid these things in the future. We just don't find the time. And that's one of the issues with problem management. We don't do it, though we know we should. Now, I think it was David or it might not have even have been a pinker. Someone I was chatting with and we were talking about how my roots go back to a, a real help desk. Um, not that they're a fake help desk, but like old style help desks. And he kind of brought up the idea, which I'd never even thought of. And that's this whole notion of process management owners. Uh, or stewardship over problem management or, or another process. For a career, that's kind of a new, newer discipline. I mean, we really didn't have people with those types of titles, you know, 10 years ago. Do you feel the industry as a whole, before we get into the nitty-gritty of problem management, is is ready to actually recognize and define someone as more than just a certificate? They've actually, I mean, if you were hiring a problem management for, problem manager for Pink Troy, were there certain questions you could ask him as a hiring manager that would determine that, yeah, he's done more than pass a test? Well, you know, from an education and a knowledge perspective, that's not a hard thing. You know, to go to the right course, you know, you can, and there's many different ways to get problem management knowledge. It's not just ITIL, you know, Kapner, Trego, and you know, Ishqua uh, diagrams. That's all technical stuff that basically says you know how to get to the root of an issue. But you asked another question, which was, you know, are we ready for process owners? And I think that's more of an organizational issue than an individual. Uh, what I mean by that is we we live in the reality of silo-based organizations, and that's simply an outcome of a couple hundred years of industrial evolution that says you have a brake pedal to put on a car as it goes by. Don't do anything but think about putting that brake pedal on. Anything else is someone else's business, and don't ask questions outside of your sphere of influence control. Uh, so. What a process owner is supposed to be able to do is look beyond their individual tasks, their silo, their apartment, and say, yeah, I got accountability and I can hold others accountable to a common practice right across the enterprise of whatever I call enterprise, right? That might be a shared services group, might be full of IT, might even over uh, span suppliers. 
So the real question of, uh, you know, are we able to have process owners? Do we have the ability to enable a person, empower a person, <laughs> to use a cliche there, to actually have governance and something to say about the activities of people outside of their own local department? So when you think about process ownership, I think the real question is, are we culturally ready to accept someone who has oversight over multiple groups? That's the real constraint. Not does the person know theoretically or even practically how to apply problem management. I've seen many people go to the right courses and come back with the right knowledge and still be totally ineffective for the organization because of this. What type of classes do we send leadership to to teach them the power of empowerment? Well, one of the things that we try to do is we run uh, several sessions around organizational considerations or executive strategic work workshops or executive overviews. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about idle theory when we do these sessions. It's more the concept of common management practices and why those are important and why it's important if you're going to be a service organization to have common anything. Uh, it's interesting because I recently had a conversation with a client, won't name, that I was speaking to their senior leadership, right? Senior directors. And it was one of these EOV type activities, executive overviews. And they asked me outright, do you really think it's necessary to have a common process across application development and infrastructure, let alone even groups within those? And I said, well, if you hope to do anything with ITIL or any process, you know, forget ITIL for a moment. If you hope to do anything commonly across your group, you're going to have to swallow the pill that you need one way to do things. They hadn't even come to the determination that that was even a necessary business requirement. Mm. You seem to be, I, I was going to avoid this, but you just kind of danced back there for a moment. I almost get the feeling from reading some of your blogs and listening to you that you're not pro-silo, but you're not about breaking down silos. You're not like uh, having a Gorbachev moment where you say, bring down that wall. You're saying kind of accept that it's there and work with that as your starting point. Well, you can't really fight against several hundred years of an, no. you know, organizational design, right? That's what I heard you say. We've got what we've got. We've got silos. And I, I've seen organizations try to restructure their entire organization according to service management principles or centers of excellence. You know, and it's really a struggle because you're really kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, let's start all from scratch. That's a huge jump. And it's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. So one of the things I ask people to do is, is recognize, okay, you got your silos, all right. That, that's a reality that always will probably be a reality. But you have these processes that cross these silos. And by the way, services do too. That means you have to acknowledge what you have here is a matrix situation. Because at any given time, you might be asked to prioritize work that's coming from your direct manager, you know, aka functional activities. At, then you might be asked to prioritize uh, an IT process, an enterprise thing. And the challenge is when you when you don't not acknowledge you have these, you already have a matrix, by the way, Chris, and that's something that's important to realize. It's not something new that's suddenly being invented. We've always done this process stuff. We always just deemed it someone else's job who we were doing a favor for. But, you know, what we've always fixed things. We've always looked into the root cause of things. We've always had to change things. We've always had to move things. ITIL has not brought anything new to the table other than a, give, giving it a name that maybe we can all agree to. The, the interesting thing is, once you've acknowledged you've got a matrix, I got some stuff that crosses functions, I have some stuff that comes into functions, I can then name it, as you will, and then develop policies to say, in this case, cross-functional enterprise good overrides 
my department managers dictate. And in this case, I have to prioritize my functional activity. So it gives me the vehicle to give people guidance. You know, it's what you talk about when you talk about social media. Uh, you know, if you don't have policies, how do you expect anyone to act differently? They're just going to go by gut. And our gut tells us, focus on our direct manager. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about policy is so often in my career, policies were meant to limit and specifically for social I Tell people, actually, the policy is there to actually encourage. <laughs> just to give a basis of definition, right? Yeah, it's just, okay, I want you to do this. Um, I read online, uh, staying in our problem management vein here, an interesting quote recently from someone on Twitter. And this is, I don't, for people to listen to other podcasts, this is not a social show. But the, a gentleman said something really interesting. I think it might have been Greg, Greg Tucker from, from Tokyo. He said, you can't have problem management without an actual problem manager. Well, and that's an interesting perspective, but let me give you a case. So, so is he just, I mean, do you, we're speculating. Do you think he's talking about you actually need a, a person whose that sole job is? Or, I mean, in, in your case, I'll let you, I should let you finish, but let me just, let me rephrase the question now. Can you have a bunch of people doing problem, doing problem? People always say you can't do idle. Can you have people doing problem management? Yes, you can. Uh, they may not have the title of problem manager, but to be fair to the quote, they were doing problem management tasks when they were doing it. Let me give you an example. Uh, at one time, I played a service desk manager on TV. <laughs> what I mean by that is, you know, Pink gave me a project I was filling in um, maternity leave for a service desk manager for six months. And so I had, I got them manage a desk for one of our clients. That's very cool. Yeah, it was, it was cool. You know, I, it was a six month activity, but I learned a lot. I hope they did too. But here's an example of how this worked. I'm sure you've run the top 10 incident list in your career. Yeah. Right. And you also have to deal with people who get tired of being on the phone and managing the queues all the time. So what I would try to do is I'd say, okay, we got a team of seven, eight people. I'm going to try to take two people off proactively, and I want you to run the top 10 list and look for pattern recognition, <laughs> right? Let's say using the old Pareto analysis that if I can deal with 20% of the biggest issues, I can deal with 80% impact, right? So we tried to look for that low-hanging fruit, as they say, and it, it worked okay. We, we'd find some things. We'd try to put some, some improvements in, but we were limited to our own sphere of influence, right? So we could maybe improve some things around the service desk or the service desk service, but it was hard to you know, impact or create a, a major impact problem management wise on the IT in general. But it was something we were doing. Now, the challenge with this was, what do you think happened the moment, you know, a major outage occurred? Uh, I would pulled these people off the phones, I'd put them into this proactive, quote unquote, problem management activity looking for patterns. But the moment an urgent crisis came up, I'm sorry, we had to yank them right back. Uh, the unfortunate part was that in my good intentions were to have this happen regularly, but it happened far less regularly than I had hoped because we were always in crisis. Right. We were always in urgency. Uh, and this is one of the reasons we or I usually advocate you don't combine incident and problem management activities in the same group. So kind of in, in some of the service desks, I uh, use that term loosely, that I've seen in, in my experience, when looking for and doing pattern recognition, I found that one of the challenges goes back to correct incident logging to begin with. So can a problem manager, is, is part of the problem manager's job to help course correct maybe at times? Well, 
having good incident data, to your point, is a key input to pattern recognition, because if everyone's using the other field uh, or not commonly or, you know, with an agreement classifying their incidents in a correct way, it's hard to find those patterns. But you're not limited to that data input. I'm sure you've been around the water cooler and everyone's complaining about this thing that always happens. Well, hey, maybe there's a problem there, right? Or you're in a handover meeting and the night shift's coming off and the day shift's coming on and you're handing over and in, in conversation, the human intuition, because as you said, we look for patterns by, by nature, says, I think I've got a gut there's something going on over here. I think we should look for it. So while data is a key input, that data doesn't have to always be solid incident records, if you will. It can be other other means for identifying problems. That kind of brings in this whole concept because I'm I'm a raw data guy. I mean, to me, problem management was looking for patterns within the good data I have within the events of the systems that weren't logged via incident that just came in Ideally. Through, through event management. But it kind of makes you wonder, if, because you mentioned the water cooler, does the problem manager need to have a sense of Dr. Phil about him? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I hear something. I, I recognize something. Let, let's investigate. What we tend not to do is write it down and then follow up with the action of discovery, right? That's that, do I have the time again to do it? Yeah. So we we know about these conversations. They happen around us all the time. But what are we actually doing about it practically? Um, I, I've got an example, kind of a case study example for you if you're interested. Sure. So not too long ago, uh, I was working at a, another client. It was a major bank. And this is going to be an interesting example. The, the issue here was, or the example was, Microsoft had given us one of those security alerts, as we often got and still do. And it was a vulnerability in the IIS servers. So the conversation happened like this. The security guy, he gets the alert. He walks over to the the server guy and he says, listen, we've got this vulnerability. I think it's important enough to look at. I really think we should look in to see if we should do the patch upgrade and, and, and figure this out. What we've got there is a known error, even before a problem ever even occurred in my organization. Right. But what happened in the story was the guy said, sure, I'll get on it right away. You said it's serious. I believe you. Of course, it was all a verbal conversation, Chris, right? So what happened? The guy got busy. And what happened to the request looking into this vulnerability? Well, nothing. So what happens three days later is the blaster virus. Remember the blaster virus? Yeah. It hit and it took the bank down for three days. But they knew three days earlier that there was a potential known error. Wasn't that a SQL exploit? No, <laughs> Now I'm trying to remember back to the Blackstar. Oh, well, I'll put it in the show notes along with everything else you talked about. Yeah, so you can do Google the Blaster, you know, Blaster virus. Yeah. But here's, let me play that story back for you. Let's say I have a, a known error. I know about it. I got the post from the, from the supplier. I document that as a known error. I then pass that record of a known error over to the server guy. And I tell him again, verbally, I played through that same scenario. But now at least I've got it recorded. It's down on paper in a virtual sense, and I have to do something with it. I mean, I could still ignore it, but it's harder to ignore when it's actually documented, right? So ideally, he would have then recognized it, even though he was busy, he came back and is still sitting there in his queue. He would have done the assessment, they would have seen a vulnerability, and they may or may not have decided to do something, but at least they would have had the the management decision versus doing nothing because I, I never captured it. I never managed it through its life cycle. So kind of spread this idea out of being know, knowing ahead of time that there's a vulnerability and it's going to be patched on Tuesday. Internally, when we're developing code, 
and we go through the process and all the proper procedures to get it released. And we still have a known issue for the code, even though it's been released into production. There are some workarounds and things. Is there some type of handoff from release back to problem to document those known errors? Well, you know, a strict idle term is kind of a knowledge management life cycle, right? The interesting, it comes back to our silos again. We usually have one of the major silos between the application development or supplier and the production support group. Now, there is not a single application that has ever gone into production without some known <laughs> defect, right? Not one? Not, not even a Mac app? <laughs> no, probably not even a Mac app, because otherwise we wouldn't get all these updates in the Mac store, right? Right. The, the interesting thing is, where do you see the communication of that bug list, known error, over to the poor you know, fellows that are going to, ladies, are going to have to support this going live. Well, you don't. That's what I'm no, saying. I mean, is it's it- because a silo and it's because we use two different systems for tracking bugs versus tracking incidents or whatever you want to call them. But if we had a problem manager, couldn't that be part of his job to log that into our system as a known error before we get the error? We certainly would see the problem manager say, you're bringing that into production. Let me see your known defects. Let me make sure I capture those in whatever okay. operational level knowledge base we have, if it's not the same one. So there, there there's another piece of the job description that we just added to this. So the human intuition, the pattern recognition, and the cross-silo and being able to take that knowledge and bring it in. Because I'd never really considered until you set um, about the known vulnerabilities and putting them in as known issues. Oh, when you get that list, that that's actually a really smart idea. Wouldn't you, as a service desk manager, have really appreciated that list a few days at least before the actual change took place so the release was deployed? At least you knew what you were going to come up against. And you know what? Half the time, they already know the mitigation steps. But so often, I'm more worried as a service desk manager about testing the fix for that exploit against all my other systems than the actual exploit itself. And that's just me and my experience as a service desk manager. I really didn't care if it was uh, about the, the problem management aspect of knowing ahead of time that you're giving me. I cared about, hey, get this tested so we can get it rolled out because we need to know if it's going to break stuff. I was more worried about the horse and not the cart, if that makes sense. Well, testing is important because you don't, you, don't, you don't want anything showing up that's not prime ready, right? Or prime time ready. Yeah, just because it's a hot fix for Microsoft doesn't make it ready. And if, probably there are some known errors going in, right? And maybe they may not expose those to you. And that's the, the other issue of protectionism. The developers know well that this exists, but they don't want to, you know, quote unquote, call attention to the quality of their work. So they don't tend to be too open about those known issues. But that's what we got to stop in an enterprise approach to management. Hmm. I think I like practitioner radio already. <laughs> um. <laughs> you know, but you know, problem management can take baby steps. So, Chris, you don't have to go you know, to the hundred percent idle definition of you know goodness. You can do small things on on your way to getting better. And I, I kind of talk about that in my blog. If you think that'd be a, a good place to go, sure. Okay, And we'll put a link to your blog and, and all the other definitions because you've rattled off some doozies uh, in the show notes for today's show. So don't worry, people. You don't have to pause just like the rest of the podcast. What we do, there'll be notes accompanying the show where there will be links to these definitions. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the blog and those baby steps. Right. So you, you started off our, our discussion with process and maturity. And yeah, you can, you can go out, right out to a very mature practice. But you know there are small things you can do to get immediate benefit. Where most people start their problem management journey is they understand what a, a major incident is. You know, I, I like to call that an incident that's so nasty, so painful that you never want to live through that again. And so what they'll do is after they've restored service, 
they'll get all the geeks and the, the people in the room and they'll do a root cause analysis. It's basically, you know, why did that happen? Who was impacted? And how do we make sure that never happens again? I call that a victim impact statement because really they're trying to figure out how bad was it and how do I wrap the right knuckles and how do I keep it from happening? You know, and that is a bit of problem management. You're doing this, you know, a major incident followed up by the review and then some kind of plan to avoid it in the future. But for most organizations, that's where they stop. And that's the difference between root cause analysis processes and problem management in relationship to ITIL, because ITIL goes a lot further than, you know, let's make sure that we do the major reviews. So the next step, when you get that in place, because many companies say they've implemented problem, but they've never gone farther than that one activity, is to look for those patterns, Chris. Um, and how do you do that? Uh, you mentioned the data piece, right? You, you're trying to do your incident top 10 list. And if I can just cut off the top 20%, I can make major goodness happen here, uh, right? And that doesn't have to always be data-driven. It can be human intuition in your, in, your, in your meetings. So that's one way. Now, but how do you come up with policies? Because what if I have a data-driven model? Well, one of the things you can do is this. It's setting tolerances. Let's say I, I look at it from a, a service or a technology perspective. And you say, I'm going to set a tolerance for email type incidents. It says, if I see X number of incidents on this email service of this severity level or priority level within this time frame, automatically raise a problem ticket. Right? And then when I've got that policy in place, and I can even automate that in my tools, up props a problem ticket, and what does it do? It forces me to actually get into at least in analyzing, is this a problem, yes or no? And if it's not, I close it. If it is, I keep the thing moving. But the tolerances can change based on business services. So I don't know if some companies have done um, a BIA, a business impact analysis on, on their services, often related to service continuity or disaster recovery. All right, they've pretty much figured out from the business based on how much money they want to spend on disaster recovery, what they, they consider important. So you can say, all right, if it's a class one type of service, I can expect and only accept tolerance level of this number of incidents within this time frame. raise a problem. It's a class two. I can see more incidents before I raise a problem ticket. So I, I can set tolerances for when a problem record is raised based on pattern recognition, again, based on business criticality, making sure that problem management now in its focus areas is aligned with business strategy, business you know, uh, requirements, business priorities. And the third, and I'm going to stop my little rant here. Well, Troy, we enjoy your rants. <laughs> now I've got that pattern recognition. I'm dealing with those, um, those triggers. Now I get to known error, and that's the example where I can literally have a known error and it never occurred. I actually start managing things that have never actually occurred because they're potential risk. And that's that example I share with about the blaster virus. Um, from a tool perspective, I used to think, okay, a problem is, is a record. And that record kind of grows up one day and becomes a known error at some, you know, point where they have received or understood the root cause. And now I can switch the ticket to a known error status. So it's kind of like a status. But in reality, a better practice is I have a problem record and a known error record. They're separate because the in reality, I can have a known error without any other problems. But the other is true as well. I can have multiple problems associated with a single known error record. So you can see what I'm doing. We're kind of going up some level of improvement. I've never talked about process maturity, but more just 
moving this further along the practical benefit level. It's interesting because I've never really thought about getting those updates from Microsoft with the export listings um, and the fixes as being some place you could automatically log those in your known error database. Um, that's a very proactive type of thing to do. You know, next, I kind of wanted to talk about uh, this idea of pink scan. Um, it'll be a, a picture in the show notes. Pink scan is something where we go out and measure the uh, process maturity. We've done like 1,500 of these um, uh, over the years. Um, and we can actually see some fluctuation in changes in the maturity of individual processes within organizations over the uh, past few years. I know exactly, Chris. We were looking at those today. If you go back, Troy, and look at this graph, what do you see? Do you see uh, what jumps out at you? Is there any types of declines or increases that you want to chat about? Well, it was a steady decline from the early stages to now. And then we saw a spike in 2008 where it started coming back up again. Um, uh, there are multiple factors. It's hard to kind of draw a major conclusion now. But what I'd I'd make one assumption is that as 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 economies have gotten tighter, as we've released more resources <laughs> to their own you know devices, we have fewer people to do more and more work. Let and then our complexity, you know, Moore's law coming in basically, and new technologies entering our sphere of management on a regular basis and accelerating. It's almost like we have the need to do more with less at the same time as what we need to manage is growing. So again, what happens is the necessary just is overwhelmed by the urgent. And I'm not sure about you, but you know, I've never felt any more urgent than now with all the things that are seeming to happen almost without control, you know, hitting IT many times outside of the control of IT, smartphones and social media. And since the internet, <laughs> we, 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 it's almost like IT doesn't direct strategy anymore. Troy, what do these processes tell you as far as the order in which people do things? Do they start with change to get the quick wins, or what do you think? Well, you could also say, uh, in our experience, what people are working on, uh, they usually will work on their incident process. That's one of the first things, because they got to get basic blocking tackling in place. Then they'll jump problem, meaning to come back to it later. Uh, they'll hit change. Because that's another bugbear, right? That's another issue, and that's very thorny. Uh, because they need to get some kind of detail around their assets, and they, they can't do that unless they get some control over their environment. So then they'll start hitting the, con, you know, the config question, or maybe not going that far, but even just basic asset management. And then the new topic is service catalogs. So now we're talking about services, and rightly so, because you know we deliver services. We should know what we do for a living. But what got left behind is poor problem management. You know, it, it was always an intended thing. We were going to run back there at some point and get better at that. But it's the lowest maturity of all the operational processes over years. Yeah, it's strange because there's this huge spike in right around 2004. I have no idea what that could be. Before ITIL version 3 came out, right? <laughs> and then we had a whole new set of processes to worry about. <laughs> and it also looks like capacity management uh, had a spike. Um, it, it's interesting to look at the correlation between events going on now 
um, in this graph in the maturity levels. And you would have seen IT service continuity having a big spike after Katrina. We're, we're often event-driven. Katrina, wow. Okay, I, I guess Katrina would be a, a process-altering event. Well, Troy, it's been an exciting 30 minutes with you. I appreciate your time, your wisdom. I'm looking forward to doing these every week with you. Um, anything you want to tell the audience about what to look forward to in the future? Well, what we're going to try to do is is take a process at a time and look at it from a practical application. So Chris and I are going to get together and say, okay, what's the next most important process we need to address? And it's it's all about no nonsense, no you know, not looking at it from a theoretical perspective, but how do I make small, modest improvements to get quick benefits? That sounds exciting. A process at a time. There needs to be a process that focuses on that. Uh, or maybe even a process around a podcast. All right. Hey, we're going to wrap things up today with something we're going to do each and every single show. Are you ready? It's Troy's Thunderbolt Tip of the Day. Troy, give us your thunderous tip of the day. You need to move beyond the major problem review for major severity one incidents. Get on to some pattern recognition. Start making some sense out of removing incidents from your environment. Get off the hamster wheel of death. Otherwise, you're just going to find yourself always in the mud, not being able to look proactively at anything. Perfect. Fantastic tip. Look forward to those every week. Troy, thanks so much for your time today. And everybody, this has been Practitioner Radio, and we will chat with you next time. Thanks so much. Take care, Chris. Bye.